Well, good morning. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Yes. You know, I want to welcome all of you who might be visiting with us. And you may or may not be frequent to church. It may be on Easter's or Christmases that you come, you know, and, and you may sometimes may be taken aback at the, at the joy that you see around you, especially on Easter. He is risen. That means that Jesus was not just a man. That means Jesus, all the promises that he made are true. It means that he is who he says he is and that you can put your trust in him. And in doing so, you get freed from the biggest fear you have in life, dying. Because he's conquered death. And beyond death is eternal life. And eternal life is knowing Christ. And so we're here today to know more about Christ. It's a taste. It's a foretaste of what's to come. An eternity of knowing the most glorious, the most beautiful, the most wonderful, the most compassionate and kind and generous being that you could ever know. And consider this joy, the joy of this morning, an invitation to come and know him. Come and know joy. He is real and he is risen. He is alive from the dead. God raised him. And we're going to talk about that this morning, what all that means. So welcome to Resurrection Sunday. Easter, as I called it all days growing up, but it just seems more appropriate to call it Resurrection Sunday. Easter can go all kinds of directions. But we know what we're talking about when we say Resurrection Sunday. And we're glad to be gathered together as a church family. We're equally glad to have the family and friends that are visiting with us this morning. And so we extend to you a heartfelt Welcome to all of you in the name of Jesus Christ. So let me pray and we'll take a look at God's word together. Heavenly Father, we know that it is all too possible to have ears that hear but not really understand what's being said. Especially when we are talking about your word that has to be spiritually appraised in order to understand and receive it. And so it is to you that we go. It is to you that we depend that you would work through the preaching of your word this morning as we speak about you raising your son from the dead. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. Well, how did you celebrate Easter growing up? My parents were not Christians. And so we did not attend church. And so I only knew this day as Easter. In the the pantheon of holidays, uh, let's be honest, Easter is like a minor holiday in the kids' kids view of things, right? I believe I had a vague idea that Easter was associated with Christianity. But because I never went to church, all of that was really lost on me. Uh, The idea of... The resurrection was, for the most part, completely lost on me. I I enjoyed this day simply for what it brought. Some fun, some candy, a family gathering for a special meal. And all of these contributed essentially to the fun that I had as a child growing up. Now, perhaps your experience with Easter was somewhat similar. This day has brought still brings a measure of joy and happiness uh, to your life and to your family, to your children. Perhaps you gather with family and you enjoy some of the, the fun activities. And while you may have a smile on your face seeing what's going on, are you, are you able to say still that you have joy in your heart? And I certainly hope that there is, but it is altogether possible that you may be facing circumstances that, that can't be overcome by some colored eggs and a chocolate bunny. You might be facing significant financial hardships. You might be struggling in your relationships and you're just, you're not sure what to do. Perhaps you've lost your job. You're scared about what's going to happen to you. You might be depressed. You might be discouraged over the state of things in your life and you're hoping maybe 
Maybe today you might find some answers. Maybe you attended church when you were younger. You even really enjoyed it. You had a a good experience for the most part about when you learned about God. But, you know, as you grew older, you've grown disillusioned with religion in general, maybe Christianity even in particular. Or maybe you're not even just, you're not even facing anything. You just don't know why you're not happy. Fear, depression, discouragement, disillusionment, unhappiness. These are not the feelings anybody enjoys. But if this is how you feel this Easter morning, believe it or not, you are in the same frame of mind as the first disciples of Jesus. Three days after the death of Christ, one disciple named Mark, he tells us in chapter 16 of his gospel that the disciples, they were still mourning and weeping together. And even after reports from Mary Magdalene, from other disciples that claimed to have seen Jesus risen from the dead, the disciples, uh, they were talking, um, we're talking about men like Peter, James, John, those ones we all kind of know their names. They refused to believe the reports. Another disciple, Luke, he gives us more details about two disciples who showed back up to this room where they were all kind of just downtrodden and and afraid, locked in a room. These two guys showed up. They said, we just met Jesus alive from the dead as we were returning to our hometown. They say in, in, in Luke's gospel, chapter 24, that they were walking on the road just a few miles outside of Jerusalem, and a man approached them and began traveling with them. And this man asks, he says, why are you guys sad? And in reply, they indicate that the hopes that they had in this Jesus of Nazareth, they were essentially dashed because Jesus had been killed by the Jews just three days ago, hung on a Roman cross. And so you see on the very first Easter, those who knew Jesus best... These were people who had witnessed his miracles. They had heard his teachings. They knew he had authority unlike any other. He had talked about the Father like he really knew him. He talked about the kingdom of God. They heard his claims about being the Son of God. They even listened to his explanation about his own death and resurrection. And yet here they were, they were just stalled in fear and in unbelief and discouragement and grief and worry. And that is not a very auspicious start to a holiday, let alone a religion that would eventually spread to every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. But I want to fast forward in time from this point of discouragement Let's jump forward just a a few days, right? So keep it in mind how discouraged, how dispirited, unbelieving essentially these disciples were. And I want you to compare it to the mindset that we read about in Acts chapter 3, verses 11 to 16. So here's the scene. You can turn there if you'd like. Acts chapter 3, you can get poised and ready. Acts chapter 3, or you can just listen if you don't want to try to find it. So here's the scene. Peter and John, these two disciples that were up in this room, discouraged. Well, they've just caused a great stir in Jerusalem. This is three days later, a couple days later. They've caused a great stir in Jerusalem. They were headed to the temple like normal. They were going to go there to pray. And on their way, as they approach the temple gate, there's this man there. He's well known to everybody because he's there every single day, brought there. And he's lame. Can't walk. Everybody know he's lame. He's been lame since birth. And they bring him there every day so that he can ask for alms of everybody who's going to the temple. And on this instance, when he directed his asking to Peter, Peter says, I don't have any gold. I don't have any silver. How about I heal you instead? And the account says that Peter lifted him up. But he didn't, you know, he didn't just like, here, let me help you up. The man leapt up. 
And then he went into the temple and it says that he was walking and leaping and praising God. And so you can just imagine the commotion that was caused by this. So here's this man. He's clearly overjoyed. He's rejoicing. You know, Peter and John are just walking and this guy's probably jumping all around them and shouting and rejoicing. And then they begin to think, wait a second. That's the guy who normally sits out front by the temple gate asking for alms. And it says, all the people were utterly astonished. And they basically swarmed them. They ran over and they surrounded them. And so Peter, this this man who had been with Jesus for three years, and then he denied Jesus, even that he ever knew him, right before he was crucified. And then when they were arrested, well, actually right before that, before they were arrested, they all fled from, from Jesus. So Peter was, was sitting in that room just a few days ago, disillusioned with the other disciples because Jesus was dead. But now he turns to the crowd and this is what he says. You can follow along in Acts 3 verse 11. Men of Israel... Why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us? Remember, this guy's jumping all around. He's so amazed that he's been healed. Why do you stare at us as though, as though by our own power or piety we made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he had decided to release him. Oh, but you denied the Holy and Righteous One. You asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And in his name, and by faith in his name, he has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Now, Peter said quite a bit more. He called them to repent. They taught the people. They proclaimed Jesus to be the Christ, the the Messiah of the Old Testament, whom God had raised from the dead. And incredibly, the reports were that thousands, not a couple, not a couple hundred, not even a couple thousand, 5,000 were believed who had believed what Peter and John were saying in that moment about Jesus. And so the Jewish authorities, they ended up arresting them. They brought them before the rulers and the elders and the scribes. And so here's Peter and John. And they're now standing before the very same men who had condemned Jesus to death. Annas, the high priest. His father, Caiaphas, probably the one who masterminded the whole sham trial that Jesus went through. And so naturally, right, Peter and John knew they'd gone too far and they cowered before them in fear and said, we will never, we will never do this again. We're so sorry. You know, that's not what happened. Nothing of the sort happened. When they brought Peter and John before them, here's what they said continues in Acts chapter 4, verse 8 through 12. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we're on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He's the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And then listen to verse 13. This is their got to picture these guys. Their eyes are wide open. Their mouths are shut or slack-jawed like, what are we hearing? 
It says, now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and they began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. I like that word confidence there in verse 13. It means to have courage, to be bold and to be fearless. So in the face of those who had killed Jesus, these men were fearless. Did that mean that they didn't think they were going to die? No. It meant they didn't fear dying. It meant they weren't afraid of what these men might do to them. Pain, suffering, even, even death had been robbed of its sting. These were two key events that transformed these There were two key events that transformed these sad and fearful disciples into bold, confident, fearless witnesses for Jesus. The first event was the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. It said right before we started reading, Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus told them that the Spirit would be the source of their power in ministry. And they were to wait for him while he showed up. And he had filled Peter to speak the way we just heard him. But there was more than just power here on display, isn't there? There was within these men an unwavering confidence that everything Jesus claimed about himself was absolutely true. There was not an ounce of doubt in these men that Jesus was the Christ. He was the Son of God And he was the savior of the world. And this newfound conviction, it was the result of the other key event. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The fact that God raised Jesus from the dead, it had dramatically changed these men to the point where they feared no one. I want to live that way. Don't you? Aren't you tired of being afraid of men? wondering what they might do to you, what might consequences you might face. I want to face life's challenges and God's enemies with a fearless boldness and confidence that says, you know, do whatever you will to me. I can't be silent about what I know to be true. Now this, let's be honest, this could be just a form of Christian boasting, isn't it? We're all walking around going, yeah, I'm going to talk that way. I'm going to be that way. It sounds like something we say in church and that usually gets a few amens, but then it more or less stops as we go to the door and walk out into the parking lot. Can the fact that Christ rose from the dead really help me and really help you to live with this kind of conviction and confidence and boldness. Well, if Peter and John are any example to us, then the, abso- then the answer is absolutely yes. Absolute confidence about who Christ is combined with the filling of God's Spirit that will drastically change how you live out the remainder of your days in this world as a Christian. And that means that Easter is actually a very significant day for everyone who is a follower of Jesus Christ. Because on this day, we remind ourselves about the primary event that declared Jesus to be everything that he said that he was. And so this morning, for your sake, for my sake, we're going to look at God's guarantees about Jesus from the resurrection. We're not going to be in any one passage this morning. We're just going to look at the topic in the scriptures about God's guarantees about Christ from the resurrection. The resurrection is God's guarantee to the world that Jesus is God's Savior and that all who trust in him will be saved. The resurrection is God's guarantee to the world that Jesus is God's Savior and that all who trust in him will be saved. There's three responses to this sermon 
that I'm praying that God will bring about in, in each one of us. We need to first understand the significance of Christ's death. Secondly, believe the guarantees about Christ from the resurrection. And thirdly, receive the truth of the resurrection. So, so let's, let's be mindful of what we're hearing. We prayed. We asked God to open our ears. So listen attentively. Maybe you've never listened before. Maybe you've just heard stuff. And you've never taken time to really consider who Jesus is. It's really easy to just get up out of your chair and go out and let the stream of life just take you right on down the road you've been going and nothing changes. Or you can stop and say, God, do you have me here for a reason today? Do you have me here so that I will finally consider who you are? Do you have me here so that I will finally live in light of who you are? I tell you what God doesn't have you here for, to waste your time. So open your ears and ask God even right now again, Lord, help me to hear. If this is something you want me to hear, help me to hear. So the gospel consists of two foundational truths, both of which are equally essential. Christ's death and Christ's resurrection. Here's what 1 Corinthians 15 says. Sums up the gospel this way. Now, Paul's saying, I made known to you, brethren, the gospel by which you're saved. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. You bury dead people. He was buried. And that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. You don't appear to people if you're dead. He was raised from the dead. And he appeared to people to show that. You knew I was dead. You saw me on the cross. You knew I was laid in the tomb. But here I am. That Christ rose from the dead is good news. And what makes this good news good is the bad news. Mankind suffers the consequences of its choices. Every one of us has chosen to rebel against the one true God who made all that there is. He is the king of creation. He is the holy, almighty, sovereign one who will judge all mankind. And even though he made the world, even though he filled it with many wonderful things that we all enjoy, he gave it to man to take care of. Man chose to reject God as his king, essentially to live life on his own terms. And it was true of the very first man, and it's still true of every man here today. Every man, every woman, every child. Man thinks he knows better. Right? He, he lives as though God's laws don't apply to him. He worships who he wants, how he wants. He lives however he wants. And as a result, right, the world and all its societies, along with all those in it, have become a mess. God still cares about us. He cares about what we're doing. He cares about how we're treating him. He cares about how we treat other people. He's not going to allow this willful rebellion to just continue on forever. See, the ultimate consequence of our rebellion, of our lawless living, right? Living as if there is no law or any lawgiver. The Bible calls this sin, and the result, the ultimate consequences is, is to give the rebel what he wants. Total separation from authority. Total separation from the king. I'm my own God. I do what I want. So that's going to actually be the ultimate consequence of sin. You get what it is that you want. His judgment on rebels will be to cut himself off from them. Now, that you may think, well, yeah, that's, that's when the party begins, right? But since God is the source of life, and he's the source of joy and happiness and everything good, everything that you consider good in your life, that all comes from God. So you cut yourself off from that. You've cut yourself off from the source of everything that you consider good. 
The Bible calls that hell. But it's not just an existence, it's a place. And it's a place that sinners go to and will be in forever. Experiencing the utter absence of good all their days. And he says, to to be in the utter absence of good, the Bible describes that as torment. It depicts people in that position as weeping, gnashing their teeth, crying out with no relief. Okay, that's, that's the picture. It's very bleak. And you're thinking, come on, man, this is Easter Sunday. Well, you, know, you guys are not in just your Sunday best. You're in the best of your Sundays. Some of you I'm seeing are looking really nice. So why are we talking this bad news? Because that's going to make the good news even better. Because God is love. He is generous. He's graciously not left man to suffer the consequences of his foolish rebellion. How do you rebel against Almighty God? Can an ant rebel against you when he's running around your feet and you just step on it? See, God could do that at any time, and he doesn't because he's kind. He wants to lead you to repentance. He did something to, that would save us from this consequence. The question is, is, how can he, a holy and just God, justify and accept the sinful rebel? Only God could figure this problem out. <clears throat> we figured it out this way. Uh, never mind, just come on in. You're cool. God can't do that. He's holy. But he figured out a way that the sinful rebel could be forgiven. Not just let off the hook. Truly forgiven. From the very outset of man's rebellion in the Garden of Eden, God has told us what he was going to do. He spoke to the serpent who had deceived Eve. And God said this. He said, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He's going to, he's going to bruise you on the head. And the word there is crush. He's going to crush you. All you're going to be able to do is bruise him on the heel. There's going to come one who's born of a woman who ultimately, in other words, he's a person. He's a man. He's a human being. He's going to be born of a woman who's ultimately going to deal with the problem that began here with the serpent. And later, God, he expanded this promise on many occasions. One time he chose, he chose a man named Abraham who was, who was an idolater. He was worshiping carved images and calling them God. And God, in his kindness, opened up his eyes, made a covenant with him. He said, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Well, the Old Testament continues on. God further reveals more information about his plan to deal with mankind's sin. He reveals that his plan involves one who's going to be a descendant of the great king of Israel, David. He's going to serve his people like a prophet. He's going to be a priest. He's going to be a king whose throne that God says, I'll establish his throne forever. And it becomes clearer and clearer that this person, he's a man. He's a man, but not just a man. Yes, he's the descendant of David. David actually says, no, he's Lord. He's going to sit at God's right hand and reign. And if we read right up until the end of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, that final book there, we realize that this book is a book without an end. You can't just stop at Malachi. There's something more to come. God's people, the Jews, they're still waiting for that one whom God promised would come and make things right. And it's with that lingering expectation that the New Testament takes over. The Gospels begin to unfold the story of Jesus of Nazareth. And they're written to show that this, this Jesus is the one who has come to fulfill all the expectations that God put forth in the Old Testament. And as we read the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, we learn about the amazing details of the birth and the life and the ministry of Jesus. And it becomes obvious through all that is said there and all that he says, along with all the works that he does, the miracles that he performs, that he cannot be just a man. In fact, he claims to be the Son of God. He claims to be the long-promised Messiah, the Deliverer, the Savior. 
See, God was fulfilling this promise from long ago to deal with the problem of sin. Only God didn't send an emissary. He didn't send one of his angels to deal with this issue. No, he came himself. God became one of us. He lived the life that we could not. And in everything that he did, he loved his heavenly father with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his mind and strength. He loved his neighbor as himself. But see, what Jesus came to do was to deal with the problem of mankind's sin. To deal with the consequences and the penalty for sin, which was death. The Bible can't say it in any fewer words than this. Five, one, two, three, four, five, six words. The wages of sin is death. It's what you get for your sin. You earned it. It's your paycheck, we said on Good Friday. Oh, for all that sin, here's you go. Death. That's what you've earned by your sin. So even though he lived a perfect and righteous life towards God, towards man, Jesus would die. But here's the thing. Jesus intentionally came to earth and became a man so that he could die for man, for our sins. And amazingly, his death would, it would be at the hands of wicked men. But even that was according to God's plan. Jesus made it clear to his disciples. He says, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one is taken it away from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. On several occasions, Jesus told his disciples flat out, I'm going to be killed. On one occasion, he said, the son of man is to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. So Jesus gave his disciples predictions about his death and events that followed. And he said, I'm doing this so that when it takes place, you may believe. So instead of man paying for his own sin on the cross, Jesus took our place. He sacrificed himself for us. And the debt that we owed to God for our sin, Christ paid it with his own blood. He took the full force of God's punishment for sin so that forgiveness and pardon might be proclaimed in his name and available to us. And this is, this is one of the ways that the Bible describes what Jesus was doing on that cross. It says he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's the significance of Christ's Death. It was for us. He died the death our sins deserved. But as you know, the story doesn't end with Jesus dead in the grave. Three days later, Jesus, after being killed by wicked men, God raised him to life again. You know, we've been told there's no guarantees in life, right? You may have found that to be true through various heartaches. You thought you could trust people. And you found out, guess what? They fail you and it hurt. Maybe that's part of the reason why you find yourself today so cynical and unhappy. Men will fail you. Mankind will fail you. Your spouse will fail you. Your kids will fail you. You will fail them. We make promises that many times we can't or we won't keep. But when God gives us a guarantee... You can count on it. The Bible is for us to know God. So it's everything that he wants you to know about him. Here's one thing he says about himself. I'm not a man that I would lie. I'm not a son of man that that I need to repent. Have I not said, have I will not do it? If I have spoken, will I not make it good? So you can take that for what it is. You can say, ah, that's just whatever. Or you can say, that's what God wants me to know about him. It's God revealing himself to you. He doesn't lie. He's not fickle. His emotions don't change his eternal purposes. And that leads us now to the resurrection. See, if you're a Christian, you already know the resurrection is important. If you're not a Christian, you're like, well, it must be important because he's said it several times. They were super happy singing about that he was alive from the dead. So this must mean something. 
Remember, this is the, the first foundational truth is, of the gospel is his death. The resurrection is the second foundational truth. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. But the resurrection is God's guarantee about certain fundamental truths about Christ. Christ is who he says he is. He accomplished what he came to do. He came to deal with the penalty of man's sin, and he did. See, that's not just good news. That's fantastic news. There is no better news. You could be thinking, well, if the 49ers win this year, that's the news I want to hear, or the Giants win, that's the news I want to hear. I tell you what, the Giants and the 49ers aren't going to matter one twit to you if you reject that Jesus came to pay for your sins. All who believe on him will be saved. So what I want you to see this Easter morning is that the more you understand these important truths about Jesus, the more confidently you will live for him. That's what Peter and John saw, right? These men's lives were transformed because they knew God raised Jesus from the dead. The resurrection serves as God's guarantees on certain fundamental truths about Christ that if you believe them, they will transform your walk with God and how you live for Christ each day. Like those first disciples, you can be confident that your trust in Christ is well-placed. And so I want to give you five guarantees to believe about Christ from the resurrection. The first guarantee that God gives us in raising Jesus from the dead is that Jesus is God's Messiah. So the word Christ, it's not his last name. It's a title. It's actually a Greek term that is the equivalent of the Hebrew word Messiah. Messiah and Christ mean the same thing, basically. The only difference between the two words is that one is Greek, the other is Hebrew. The New Testament uses the term, why Greek and Hebrew? Well, Hebrew was the language of the Jews, and Greek was the language that the New Testament was written in. That's why Greek and Hebrew matter. So the New Testament uses the term Christ because it was written in Greek. That was the language of the day. And so it refers to to Christ to refer to Jesus as Savior without really defining really any of the Old Testament understanding. It just starts naming him as Christ. So if you just started in the New Testament, you might think, uh, I thought that was his last name. No, it's a title. And it's tied very closely with everything that was said in the Older Testament. And so they didn't feel the need to define it because those who were reading it probably already understood like the apostles and what were the implications of someone being called Christ. So we, however, don't know those things typically. And so this shows us how important it is, Christians, that you know your Old Testament, that you spend time reading it. So you understand the implications of him being called Jesus Christ. Now, a Messiah in the Old Testament was one who had been anointed as with oil. That was imagery. There was nothing special about the oil. It was imagery to be... Uh, anointed and identified the person as being qualified, chosen to perform the task for which he was being anointed. So one who was anointed would be set aside for a special task. An anointed king was to rule. An anointed priest was to minister. An anointed prophet was to preach. And this means that the term can be applied to many people in the Old Testament. In fact, there were many lesser Messiahs, many people who were anointed for specific tasks. However, when this term is applied to the ministry of the Lord Jesus, it identifies him as the only one qualified, as well as the specifically chosen one who would be the savior of all sinners. God chose him for his special task. God granted him complete and sole authority to complete complete this task of saving sinners. And he empowered him by the Holy Spirit to do all that was needed for this task. A prophet, a priest, and a king, they are essential needs for man. Because sin separates him from God and prevents him from approaching God on his own. Therefore, a man needed a prophet who would reveal God to him. He needs a priest who would reconcile him to God. He needs a king who would reign over him and subdue every enemy of the soul. Many kings were anointed over Israel. Many prophets, many priests. What man needed, God in his own wondrous and amazing grace, he provided in the person of his own dear 
Son, His and our Messiah. As the ultimate and ideal Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ brought together in His single person all that God wanted, all that man needed. He is the King of kings. He is the prophet greater even than Moses. He is the priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now that may not be, well, I don't even know what that is. Read your Old Testament and you'll see why that's significant. How do, how do we know that this is true? How can we be confident that Jesus really is this one? He's this one ideal Messiah. Listen to what Jesus told them after the resurrection. This is in Luke 24, if you want to follow along with me. Luke 24 It says, Jesus said to them, he's risen from the dead and he's speaking to his disciples and he says, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, they must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said this to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. So here's the main point of this first guarantee. His resurrection verified and validated every claim the scriptures made concerning the Messiah and Jesus made about himself. All confirmed in the resurrection. The one single prediction upon which Christ staked his entire prophetic and messianic credibility was the prophecy of his own resurrection from the dead. I'll tell you what, if I don't rise from the dead in three days, you can forget everything I said. Sorry, guys, I lied. See, when the cynical scribes and Pharisees asked Jesus for a sign to verify his claims, first he rebuked them. And then he limited his verifying sign. He says, here's the one sign I'm going to give you. He called it the sign of Jonah. You know who Jonah was, the Jonah in the belly of the whale. He says, here's the sign. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That's all you get, guys. That's the sign. Pay attention. The implications of this is huge. If Jesus was right concerning this amazing prophecy, then everything that he said, it deserves your careful consideration and obedience. The resurrection guarantees that Jesus is God's Messiah. Second guarantee is that Jesus' death fully paid the debt of our sin. Romans 4.25 simply puts it this way. He who was delivered over because of our transgressions, he was raised because of our justification. See, the resurrection is God's guarantee that he, that God received Jesus' sacrifice as the full satisfaction of his wrath against all sin, the full payment for sin's penalty. And as a result, all who believe in him, they will be justified. They will be declared before God not guilty. So the resurrection is God's great stamp of approval on Christ's mission. He sent his son on a mission to rescue mankind. And the resurrection means he accomplished that mission. His death fully paid the debt of our sin. The third guarantee from God is that Jesus is man's rightful ruler and sole representative. Here's Peter, again from that sermon he preached in Acts chapter 2, on fire because he'd seen the risen Jesus and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. He says, this Jesus God raised up again. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. So his authority is supreme. He is Lord and Christ. He is deliverer and ruler. And man needs a ruler. Do you need your enemies subdued? And you're thinking, yeah, all out there, I've got a lot of enemies. How about the enemy right here in your own heart that you're in bondage to? That's made a mess of your life. You need to be set free from your own bondage to sin, and Christ can do that. He reigns supreme. Here's Paul's prayer. Here's his prayer. It was that we would know the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe, which is in accordance with the working 
of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead. He seated him at, the, at his right hand in the heavenly place, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. He put all things in subjection under his feet. And that extends even to our enemy of death. See, man needed someone to represent him before God. And Jesus said, I will do it. I will go and represent them. I will become a man. Hebrews 7.25 says, He is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. See, the resurrection declares Jesus to be the ruler and the representative we need. Guarantee number four is that every person who trusts in Jesus Christ will be saved. Okay, this is God's word to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's why your hope is alive if you're in Christ. Because it's not dead. It's alive from the dead, has conquered death, and will live forever. That's a living hope. He says in Romans 5.10, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. See, if by his death Christ fulfilled every condition to purchase life for those who were united to him by their faith in him, then those united to him, they will certainly be saved by his life, he says. If we are in him and he lives, then, well, then so do we. We live too. Even though we die, we will live with him. The resurrection means that no one's trust in Jesus will be in vain. The last guarantee that God gives us through the resurrection is that every believer in Christ has eternal life. When the disciples were growing discouraged that Jesus was leaving them, right? This is how he comforted them. He referred to his resurrection. He said, after a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. Because of the certainty of the resurrection, Jesus could promise them that they would not just see him again, but they would also be with him for all eternity. Here's what Paul says. He says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who are asleep. That's a euphemism for death. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ comes first. He's the first fruits. After that, all those who are in Christ when he returns. So Christ's life after death, it guarantees not only the future of every believer, but also guarantees the life of every believer. It's impossible for those in Christ to perish. Christ redeems us completely, and not one part of redeemed man will ever perish, not even his body. So the resurrection here, it becomes God's declaration to mankind that Jesus truly is all who he said he was, and that God accepted his death as payment in full for man's sin. Here's the last application for you this morning. Receive the truth of the resurrection. Receive the truth of the resurrection. See, if you're not a Christian, you've just heard why you need to be. The next big event, after the death and then the resurrection of Jesus, the next big event is judgment day. By raising Jesus from the dead, God also appointed Jesus to be mankind's judge. All rebels, big and small, they're all going to be called to account for their sinful actions against God. And the penalty of your sin, as we said before, it's death. You will pay that penalty yourself, and you will pay it in hell, and you will be separated from God forever. But that day of judgment hasn't come yet. The Bible mark, makes it very clear that the day is coming soon, though. And in the meantime, God is graciously offering to all rebels... Pardon through his son. Through Jesus, we can be forgiven all our sins. We can start anew with God, no longer as rebels, but now as friends. And the friendship with God that begins today, it will go on for eternity. Christian, these are, these are truths that, that you have already received if you're a Christian. 
But the question that I posed at the very beginning is, are you living in light of them? He is God's Messiah. He's the rightful ruler of men. His death is the pardon for sin, and all who trust in Jesus will be saved and have eternal life. These truths need to embolden our witness for him. So the resurrection is is not just something that we need to think about at Easter. The New Testament apostles, apostles, they included the resurrection in almost every recorded sermon we have of them. The Old Testament prophets from Moses forward, they included it in their preaching too. And these are truths that are central to our lives as Christians. These are truths that provide us confidence to live boldly. Why? Because the resurrection, when we understand what the Bible says about it, it's God's guarantee to us that Jesus is God's Savior and that all who put their trust in him will be saved. Let's pray. Give ears to hear. What has been said has been said in the best of my ability. That can't save. But what can save, God, is if you pierce the hearts of anyone in here who is apart from Christ, who's living their own life or saying, well, I'll repent someday. Lord, you brought everyone here together today so that we would be reminded of these truths. Perhaps it's the first time for some. Lord, may you drive it home. Show them their need. But for most of us here, we're being reminded of things we've known and perhaps forgotten or not given the proper um, authority and position in our life. Oh, Lord, grip us with these truths afresh and anew that we might live boldly and confidently as witnesses of the risen Christ. And we ask this in God's precious Son's name. Amen.